today. We're going to sing this familiar chorus as we gather. The Lord is here with the Spirit to work within us. Let's sing together. As we gather, may your Spirit work within us. As we gather, may we glorify your name. Knowing well that as our hearts begin to worship, because we came, we'll be blessed because we came. As we gather, as we gather, may your spirit work within us. As we gather, may we glorify your name, knowing well that as our hearts begin to worship. Bye. 
And so I'd like to lead us to the, to the Lord in a word of prayer. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray for us. Father, I'm grateful for this body that you have assembled on this day. Uh, Father, you have uh, sovereignly, uh, supremely, eternally uh, ordained this day as a day of worship to you. And so, Father, as we consecrate it, as, as we commit it to you in, in worship, uh, Father, I pray that it is deserving uh, of, of a God who is faithful uh, of a God who is, 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 uh, is, is omnipotent and omni- omni- omniscient. Uh, Father, for a God who loves his people and, and provides for them in ways that are beyond our, our, even our comprehension. Uh, Father, I'm thankful as we presently gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm thankful for each other. I'm thankful for the, the, the body here at that First Baptist Church as it not only worships together, but that it serves together. Uh, Father, that it is a healthy body, that it is a strong body, that it is a unified body, uh, Father, and that it is committed to the, the ministry of the gospel in love and in faith. So, Father, please bless both today. Bless our love for one another and for you, and bless our faith in the words that we're going to read here in a little while, uh, and our faith in Christ. Uh, Father, we are thankful for the, for the many things uh, that you have given to us and, and that, that you have bestowed on us because you love us. And so, Father, as we just offer a portion back to you now, uh, we, we, we pray that it's pleasing in your sight. And Father, may you bless the song, may you bless the gifts, and may you bless the reading of your word this, this hour. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. He's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He wants to be and starts to be along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow 
have a seat. From the Word of God today, we want to read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Three verses that are are very powerful as Isaiah, or rather God, through the prophet Isaiah, um, gives these commands uh, to the people of Israel uh, and consequently, as an extension, to the people of God today. He says this in Isaiah 1, verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, he says. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Amen. May the word of God be read in the house of God this morning. Our offertory hymn is Heavenly Sunlight 489. I'm going to let you remain seated as we sing. Heavenly Sunlight, we'll do the first and the last verse. Walking in sunlight, part of my Sunlight, flooding my soul with glory divine. 
Brother Norman Williams is going to come and lead us in our offertory prayer. And while Norman is coming, you know, I don't have to tell you how talented the Lounsdale children are, but we're looking forward to our offertory today. Tyler's going to be playing our offertory and uh, as he leads us in Jesus Messiah. So, Norman, you come and pray for us, and, uh, and Tyler will play for us. Lord, as I uh, lead us in thankfulness, turn our thankfulness to worship, and our worship to obedience. And as we agree with and pray with our pastor in gratitude for the reason that we have Memorial Day. And we're so grateful for the things that have gone before us that make this moment possible. We are free to worship, free to pray. Lord, we uh, come to this moment when we often give. Let us remember that you first gave much more than we can. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.
Wow, amen. I have me bawling up here on the front pew, y'all. I've been doing a lot of crying lately, and I don't know. I, don't, I, I, guess, I guess they're just growing up. I guess they're just growing up. One graduating, and, of course, Tyler's turning 15 tomorrow, and he's just, uh, anyway, I just listen to that gift that God has given him is just a, it's just a blessing to my heart and and uh, as just not only just a just a believer but as his father and that's just uh I'm just very very proud of him very proud of both of them um and just uh, the willingness they've been they've, they've offered the Lord and just uh in their gifts and their talents and so um anyway we better move on for a uh, Proverbs chapter 14 is where we are today uh Proverbs chapter 14 is the destination, verses 26 and 27, are where we're going to go to the scriptures this morning for instruction. So this is the fourth part of our series called Uncommon Sense. Um, We have looked at several things over the last several weeks uh, from the book of Proverbs, wisdom, if you will, uh, hence the, the whole point to the uncommon sense. But we get to a, a topic today, a principle today, that is uh, a, an additional point of interest for us uh, as it has now become more uncommon in our world, which is the fear of God. Uh, Proverbs is filled with a recognition or at least a, 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 an emphasis in the principle that we should fear God. And we're going to go through why. We're going to go through the benefits. Um, we're going to go through what, the, what that even means to fear God. Um, uh, and we're just going to allow uh, uh, Solomon's words uh, in these two verses to, to instruct us. So let's stand together. Let's honor God's word by reading it. Just these two verses that are packed full of great information. Solomon says this in verse 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this word this morning. We're grateful for the worship that we've been able to, 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 uh, to participate in and offer to you, Father. We thank you for the worship through the song and through the giving. Uh, and, Father, now as we approach your word, as we worship through the word, uh, Father, may you, may you be glorified by the reading of it. Father, may our hearts draw close to you. And, uh, Father, may we respond to it with obedience. And we pray this in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, it goes without saying that that the fear of the Lord is maybe, and I'll say maybe, it's, it, it's maybe at an all-time low uh, in human history. Uh, across the globe, across the planet, there is, a, there is a downward trend in fearing God, right? And that's, that's because, in general, the world tells us to fear everything else. Uh, it's because the world tells us to fear death, to fear COVID, to fear Satan, to fear uh, one another. The world tells us to fear all of those things. The Bible tells us to fear God, and that's it. In fact, the Bible tells us not to fear any of those other things, that through Christ we are more than overcomers, and that through Christ 
The world itself is conquered. It's defeated. It's, 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 a, it's a foe of God. So, consequently, the only thing that we should fear is God himself. And so, the book of Proverbs really emphasizes this theme. It's really heavy on it because, because without the fear of God, you really have nothing else. Now, in the ancient world, people feared God because they knew that there were forces and that there were powers beyond their understanding or control. And as the world changed, especially in the industrialized world, in the civilized world, if I could use that that phrase, it began to lose this concept. Um, This is especially true of the 20th century. The 20th century was a time marked by increased human autonomy, And what I mean by that is a collective voice that began to rise to God by saying, we don't need you anymore. We we can now handle our own affairs. We've seen a rise in secular humanism throughout the 20th century. We've seen the 20th century turn into an experimentation of sort of social issues that have all basically, in, in, in essence, thumbed their nose in the face of a holy God. These have, in, these have led, if you will, to an increased drop in the fear of God in our world. When you look around now, you don't see people fearing God. You see them fearing everything else. And the evidence that we know, we can see the evidence of it all around us. Everybody in the world is afraid of everything else but God. People no longer, if I could use the words of Christ, they no longer fear Him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell... They fear all these other things. They no longer fear God's judgment. They no longer fear what God thinks about how they live, how they make choices, how they sin, or how they make decisions in their lives. They no longer hallow his Sabbath. They no longer hallow his name. And they no longer worship him as God of heaven and earth. So we're going to look at what that means this morning to fear God. Because this concept is not just necessarily lost to the unbelieving world. It is even prevalent among the people of God. This lack of fear among God's own people of God himself. Christians, though, can make this common again. It is uncommon in our world to fear God. But we, as believers, can make this common again. In fact, I would argue that we must in order to restore God to his rightful place in our social, in our in our communities, in, our, in, our, in, our, in the, the centers of, of our civilizations. And so what is, let's, let's just look through this in what Solomon has said to us in our text today. The first point is this. What does the Bible say about the fear of God? What, is, what does Scripture say? Because we know what the world says. But what does the Bible say about the fear of God? Well, the first thing is that the fear of the Lord has more to do with reverence and piety than it does being frightened or afraid. Now, what, is, what do I mean by that? Well, the fear of the Lord is akin to being reverent to or having piety to God. Now, when we speak of fear in a biblical sense, we're not necessarily talking about being scared or being frightened of God. Now, this is to say, that, or rather not to say, that we shouldn't be afraid of what God can do to us. We should most definitely be aware or, or be at least cognizant of what God could and can do to us. We should 
be frightened by his power and his capability as the omnipotent God of the universe. But when the Bible speaks of fear, it's not necessarily coming into it with that negative angle or that negative slant. What it means, in fact, is that fearing God has a positive origin. Uh, it, It doesn't necessarily take in and of itself a negative face. It actually has a positive one. It means that the origins of our responses to God are birthed out of a positive predisposition. That our motivations, for example, when we respond to him, are positive in nature rather than negative. Let me give you an example of what I mean. When we were children, we feared our parents. We feared what they would or could do to us if we did something to them like lie. Right? Remember those days? Remember, remember when your parents instilled a fear in you that if you lied to them, there were serious consequences? That fear was the motivator to tell the truth. But if it's birthed out of only a negative origin, then your predisposition to your parents will have a negative recourse. What do I mean? Well, it's a much better way of, of, of telling them the truth when it's birthed out of a love or a reverence or a piety to them than it is just simply because you're afraid of them. Does that make sense? And, and I think the same is true for God. Telling God the truth, b- being obedient to God in his principles because you love him is a much different thing than you're just simply afraid of what he'll do to you if you don't. Okay? And, and, and biblically speaking, our, our fear of God should be predicated by our love for him, our reverence for him. We should place him in such a place in our lives that our responses to him, our fear, if you will, of him is positive. We have this whole concept of reverence to God and, 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 really, just, and really what it is is just putting him in his rightful place. That's really what it is. It's elevating him to a place of reverence, just like you did with your parents. You put him in a place of reverence. You put him in a place of honor and dignity. You elevate him to that place. Then your motivation for obeying him is a positive one. It's a motivation of reverence. It's a motivation of love. It's a motivation of service. And when we we respond that way, then we're partnering with God. We're joining God in his efforts. The second thing is that the fear of the Lord, and this is prevalent in in Proverbs as well, leads to wisdom and knowledge. Classic scripture from Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's It's said very early on in the book of Proverbs, and it's reiterated over and over in the book itself. But what does that mean? That the beginning, or the, rather the fear of the Lord, leads to wisdom and to knowledge. Well, let me, let me read to you Mark chapter 8, verse 36, and then we can put this into context a little bit. Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Okay? What does that mean? Well, in, in the context of fearing God, the pursuit... Of, of knowledge, of the human mind and the soul to know things, be, to be wise, this pursuit, apart from a knowledge of God, only leads to death. 
Okay? What, what do I mean? Well, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the fullness of knowledge and the fullness of wisdom, one can gain all of the earthly knowledge that they want. But, it, what, but what does it gain him or her to just gain that earthly knowledge if, if they perish from the earth and it's all for nothing? How can one unlock the mysteries of the universe but, but, but fail to gain basic fundamental knowledge of a personal relationship with God? What does it profit? Right? I know a lot of people, for example. I know a lot of people who, whose minds are filled with knowledge. I mean, they can tell you anything about anything. Um, their minds are, some of them are especially interested in sports. Some of them are especially interested in the sciences. Some of them are especially interested in things that do not interest me at all, like mathematics. Amen? Can I get an amen on that one? Okay, good. Or as I used to teach social studies, I could probably get a bigger amen out of that one. Amen? Uh, it's true, though. People have the knack for knowing things. And that's great. But if it all comes at the expense of a personal knowledge of God, which is really what the Hebrew word for knowledge really was interested in, not necessarily empirical knowledge or facts or information, but a personal knowledge of God. Because that's what matters. Okay? You can know everything about the world. You can know how it works. And if you have a, a, a fundamental lack of ignorance or a fundamental abundance of ignorance about the things of God, you're no better than anything else. Even worse, what are the pursuits of wisdom and knowledge if they come apart from one's fear of God? Many brilliant minds exist in the world today that have failed. They have mastered the art of knowledge. But they have failed to connect that with the one who created that knowledge to begin with, the Alpha and the Omega. They do not tremble at his majesty of the knowledge they possess, especially in creation. This is especially true today. We have all kinds of professionals and experts on all matters, science and technology, but they fail to connect God to that. What does it profit They do not ascribe to him honor for being the origins of their knowledge to begin with. And these kinds refuse to elevate him to his rightful place in their lives or in the world. Thus, they perish in their ignorance. They fail in their endeavors. And all they gain in the end is arrogance. I'm sure you know some people like that. People who are proud of themselves for their letters behind their names, yet fail and fundamentally just fail to have a relationship in any knowledge whatsoever of the divine. I would say the former is worse than the latter. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Ignorance of the divine leads to death. Knowledge of the divine leads to life. In fact, one could be, in many ways, ignorant of the ways of the world, but be filled with the wisdom and knowledge of the divine that they fear him more than they fear the world. I know a lot of lay pastors. I know a lot of Christians who, who are, they don't know nor care about the affairs of the world. They're, they're fundamentally ignorant. Maybe they're small-minded. Maybe they're only just 
localized to a small world. They don't care about the rest of it. They don't know about the rest of the world. But yet their knowledge of, of God is abundant. It's, it fills their lives. You see it in their lives. You see it in their words. And, 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 and their knowledge of God is, is amazing. These are saints of God. Because it's their knowledge of God that makes them righteous and holy, not their knowledge of the world. We ought to, as, as, as in some capacity anyway, fear, Lord, fear the Lord as we pursue wisdom and knowledge. The third thing is that the fear of, Lord, the, fear of the Lord means departing from evil. And that's, that's what he gets to here in this passage this morning. That the fear of God leads to a departing of evil. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? What does wisdom and knowledge profit an individual if their end goal is to simply honor themselves? What good does wisdom and knowledge do or whether it benefit a person if they reject truth in the end? This is what's confounded me over the modern times is is people who have all this knowledge and they have all this information yet conclude that the truth is a lie. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how, how we can have all of this information that's been, that's, been, that's been common to man for millennia. But somehow modern man is the clever type that thinks we've been wrong for thousands of years. I don't understand that. Right? And, and it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it definitely doesn't make the world a better place consequentially. Actually, it makes it more evil. Because the ultimate goal of fearing God and possessing wisdom and knowledge is to know how to depart from, from evil and to live righteously. You see, when one fears God, that fear rightly and optimally positions them to love Him and to keep His commandments. Go all the way to the end of the book. Let us conclude the matter. What is the fullness of man's journey but to to fear God and to keep His commandments. When one loves God and keeps His commandments, it consequentially causes them to hate sin and depart from it. This is the just cause of fearing God, that we depart from evil, that we are sanctified, and that we are conformed to the image of Christ. That is, if you will, what the fear of God produces, to depart from evil. The second part of Solomon's point here, though, is not that it's all bad. It's, there's actually some very good benefits, and I want to I kind of run through these just for a minute this morning as we look at the benefits of fearing God. Those who fear the Lord, the first thing is that we have confidence in Him. I broke this down into two parts. The first thing that we have confidence in is His work. Amen? We have confidence when we fear God, we have confidence in His work. Not our work. His work. Because the next point to be made about fearing God concerns itself with the positive products of such fear. When we fear God, it puts us in a position to trust Him. This is especially true about what He has done in the past, what He is presently doing now, and what He will do in the future. We can have, as we fear God, we can have confidence in those things. Well, how so? Well, first, we have the benefit of knowing of all of the wonderful works of God through His Word. 
You ever wondered why the book of the Bible is such a benefit to us? Because we can literally pick it up and we can read it from Genesis to Revelation and we can have confidence in knowing what God did for his people. Amen. I mean, and I, and I think about that all the time. We, we have the benefit and, and confidence that, that we can see the majesty of God, for instance, in creation. We can see his work of preservation and protection through the nation of Israel. We can see the work of Christ on the cross. We can see his guidance in the lives of the apostles. We can see the movement of the gospel across the world. And we can see the preservation of the word by the Spirit of God. And then lastly, we can see the work of God in our own lives. As we fear him and we give him reverence and honor, we do so because of all of these things that he has done. Amen? All the things that he's not necessarily doing now, that he's already done. And that gives us much confidence as we approach the present tense that those mighty works that he did in the past, that those, that those mighty things that God should be praised and glorified for, that, that because they weren't alone, we won't be either. Because when we look back on the things, we can gain confidence that the work he is doing now in our lives will be done to completion. So many Christians live their lives as if it's just, just getting by. Just getting through. If I can just make it through this day. If I can just make it through this month. No. That's the wrong Christian attitude. We are, we are not only more than overcomers. But that the work God started in us at salvation. He will see through to completion. And so we don't necessarily live in the, the victory of the past. We live in the victory of the present. Because we can have confidence that what God is doing now. He will finish. And we should trust him with fear and trembling, as Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12 of his letter to them. It's a great work that God is doing in our lives. Partner with that and have confidence in what God is doing. Additionally, we can see from the past and the present work of God, and we can gain confidence in the future work as well. Namely, in the filling of the world with the gospel. In the preserving of the church unto the end. And then the returning on the clouds of glory. And establishing the throne of God forevermore on the earth. In the bodily return of Christ. We can have confidence in that. We can know that we can know that we can know. That God said it in the past. He did it in the present. And he will do it in the future. So much confidence in that that Christians miss out on simply because they don't fear God. We can have confidence in his work. Additionally, we can have confidence in his providence. You see, his work cannot be separated from that of his providence. His works, in a way, are the evidences of his providence. And what do I mean by providence? I mean the fact that God gives to us whatever we need, whenever we need it, exactly how it is according to his perfect will. I mean, my goodness, he parted the Red Sea as a way of providentially preserving the people of God. He parted an entire sea. He cleansed the promised land to providentially fulfill his promises to Abraham. I mean, he sent his son to an old rugged cross as a way of providentially delivering on the promise of redemption to his people. 
And you see, in every word of Scripture, one cannot escape the inevitable hand of God providing for His people in one way or the other. There is confidence in that. When you fear God and you have confidence that He's going to to take care of you, then you learn to trust His methods and His patterns. Because every word of Scripture of providence, of, of, of testimony to the faithfulness of God is the evidence of his methods and his patterns. And they should cause the whole earth to tremble before him in fear. I mean, we, as we consider even in our own lives how he provides for us daily and how we live lives of such privilege. We should fall before his feet in awe and reverence. As the world itself sees and observes the providential nature of how God uses people and things to accomplish his will, it should fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Because that's the only other recourse you can offer when you fear God. In all of this, the providential nature of God causes us to have confidence in his ways. And let me remind you of Scripture. God's ways are not our ways. Amen? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so if we're leaning on ours, if we're trusting in ours, then we're not trusting in His. And His methodologies, though they may not make sense to you here, they will here. I'm getting a little violent up here, aren't I? I'm beginning to attack myself. I deserved it. Some of you are wishing you could have done that. But, but there's peace and there's confidence in being able to trust the methodology of God. I, I've learned it in my life. I, I, part, of, part of that for me is that I just don't make plans anymore. And, and if I do, if I have them in my mind, I don't tell him. Because I know that he's going to have a method that's not going to be necessarily, necessarily similar to what I'm thinking. Okay? And I learned that. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for that. Because not only is, is God going to provide a path, he's going to provide a way. He's going to give me what I need when I need it, how I need it, and all of those kinds of things. And then if I trust that, I'll find out in the end it was the best way. So many people never get to that point because they don't trust his methodology. But it should fill us with such fear that we would trust the Lord alone and no other. Thirdly, those who have a fear of the Lord have a place of refuge. She says his children, in verse 26, have a place of refuge. A refuge, first of all, in times of trouble. As we reach this part of of the benefits, we find that those who fear the Lord have a place to go when things get bad. Right here, right now, physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, whenever we get in that place of darkness, whenever we get into that place of trouble, we have a place to go. A safe place, by the way. And I know that's a modern word that we like to throw around with a little bit of added weight to it. But, but we as Christians were promised the first safe place, and that's God himself. Okay? Back in the ancient world, when an enemy would invade a kingdom... The citizens of that kingdom would flee to a castle or a citadel for safety. In those innermost parts of that castle, there was safety, providence, provision, protection for its citizens. 
in its most intrinsic way, God is that to his people. That when the world gets dark and the news is constantly bad, when things happen and you get a bad doctor's report or when when things are going on in your life and death happens or whatever begins to happen, we have a place in which to go. A place of safety, a place of providence, a place of, of the presence of God. And in the innermost parts of the Lord, there is safety for the citizens of heaven. We should run to these places in times of trouble. I'd like to read to you this morning Proverbs chapter 46. It's only 11 verses. If you want to turn with me there, that's great. If, you want to, if your hands need something to do, if you're already starting to find yourself getting bored with this sermon and you need something to do, turn, turn, turn to Psalm 46 real quick and let's read this together because this is a beautiful, beautiful exposition of God as our refuge. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You hear the conclusion to that. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help right now. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He not, might not, not maybe not. It's not that, that, that unless we give him exaltation, then he will be exalted. No, he is exalted. He will be exalted among the nations. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. What a beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture that we can endure in times of trouble because God is our refuge. The second thing is that he is a refuge from sin. Spiritually speaking, we also have hope in knowing that God is our refuge from sin. That those who fear God can have the full assurance that sin no longer has dominion over their lives. I don't know how many Christians I've talked to that, are, that, that will tell me that they cannot escape their sin. Believer, hear me. Your sin is dead to you. Your sin has not overcome you. Why? Because Christ already conquered it on the cross. The indwelling Spirit of God has mortified it in your body. And the Father looks down on Satan now in derision as a defeated foe. Thus, we can have the full benefit of knowing that we can run to God when temptation comes our way. And this is where we seem to have a problem when the rubber meets the road in temptation. We don't run to God, we run to sin. And then we have to deal with the consequences thereof. 
But those who fear the Lord have an understanding of how sin can change their lives. Just like that. Right? When we run to the Lord, when we have an understanding of how sin affects our lives, it changes how we battle lust. It changes how we battle self. It changes how we battle sin around us in the world. Primarily, this change comes from knowing that we no longer have to fight the battle alone. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's talking about temptation. Right? That's not talking about hardships in life. That's talking about temptation coming at you and God giving you a way to overcome it. And when we fear God and we fear his judgments against sin, then we partner with him to overcome it. Why? Because he is our refuge and our strength. That we can run to him during these times. That he will fight off the demons that attack us and that he will protect us as we fear him more than we fear our enemies. And then lastly, those who fear the Lord escape the traps of Satan. This is verse 27, the very last part. To turn, away from one, from, to turn one rather away from the snares of death. The fact is, the truth is, that Satan has set many traps to snare people in sin. When I think about what this looks like, I think about those guys who trap. They hunt, they trap to hunt, whatever. I don't do it, so I may be using the wrong terminology. It may sound like an idiot right now, but that's okay. You get my point, right? You ever watch, uh, watch those Alaskan shows where they'll have those traps and they'll set them out for, for furs and all that kind of stuff? This is, this is similar to the way Satan snares people. Like an animal in a snare, so too are the ways of Satan, right? You may not know it, but Satan himself is a cunning hunter. In fact, he is an apex predator who has placed traps all over this world to catch people in. Additionally, he has placed perfect lures in them to entice people to enter. Once we bite, the trap is set. I got a house, I got a guy that lives down the road from me, right into town. I don't even know who he is. But he'll set traps out all the time to catch the squirrels in his yard. Cracks me up. Because squirrels are everywhere, amen? And, and, and he does, obviously doesn't like them in his yard. No judgment. I just, I just think it's funny. One day when we were walking the dogs, we passed the house and there was, a, there, was a, there was a squirrel in the trap. And it was one of those rectangular traps that had the door that cuts, you know, and, 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 I, and it had a little pile of stuff and a little food in there. And, and that squirrel was enticed. It, it went in there, and as soon as it got that food, that thing, that, and it, as soon as it set, and, it, and there was no telling how long it had been in there. When we saw it, it was running around in circles, just wide open. It was running around, trying to figure out a way out of that trap. Now, I don't know what happened to that squirrel. I'd hate to even guess. But... That picture is a perfect one for what it looks like when people fall into the snares of Satan. 
It's a perfect picture of how, how we, through our own desires, through our own lusts, are, 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 will bite even though the, the, the trap is set. We know better and do it anyway. Now, the squirrel probably didn't, but whatever. But once the trap is set, once the door is closed and there's no way of escape, then we, just like the squirrel, will run around in circles trying to escape. We'll exhaust all of our energies. We'll exhaust every single thing that we have in our capacity and generally only make it worse because that's the way it works. So many people in our world today are just like this squirrel. They're trapped in one of Satan's illustrative snares and they cannot escape. Fearing God, as this next part here, keeps us from being trapped in Satan's snares. When we fear God, we can avoid these traps. We can do so by recognizing them for what they are. Okay? And I know sin is alluring. I know it's, I know it's, it's just enticing. I get it. I'm human too. But when we fear God and His judgments and His consequences of the sin... We can avoid them by recognizing those traps for what they are. We can avoid these traps by knowing that death awaits those that that are trapped or enticed to enter. And we can do so, avoid these traps, I mean, by applying wisdom and knowledge that we gained from the beginning that God has given to us simply because we fear Him. I'm here to testify as an individual who has been trapped and one of Satan's devices before, that it is no fun. It is no fun to be trapped in one of Satan's snares. Only God himself knows how to come in there and release the hinge pin and let you out. Only God can save you from that. Only he can take care of that. Because if not, then the consequences thereof are the ways of death. On the night of Jesus' passion... The Apostle Peter was trapped by one of Satan's snares, and so was Judas. One escaped, one didn't. Let that be a lesson for us. Let that be wisdom and knowledge for us. That there is a way that seems right to a man, but its ends thereof are the ways of death. Recognizing them beforehand are matters of life and death. So what does Solomon teach us this morning? Well, he teaches us that fearing God gives us wisdom and knowledge. He tells us that fearing the Lord gives us confidence in His work and His providence. And that fearing God helps preserve our lives from destruction. Such wisdom, such beauty from the scriptures this morning as we pray and conclude this text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this word. Father, as we bring this sermon to a close, I pray that these words just begin to illuminate in our lives, that they begin to become life, that they begin begin to give us wisdom and knowledge. Father, that they build confidence in you, that, that when we fall into temptation, that when we fall into the snares, that we'll run to you as a place of refuge. Father, that we'll not give in to sin, that we'll not bite Satan's traps, the Father, that we will...
preserve our lives in you. Father, we thank you for the, for the word this morning that's been read to us, that's been given to us, so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And Father, as these words come to a close, I pray that they accomplish the will that you seek, that lives are enlightened and illuminated, that lives are saved even, spared from destruction. Father, whatever the consequence, may you be glorified by what's said and done this morning. We pray this now in Christ's name, and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Father, Son.